Hi, I'm Milton Davis, and you're listening to Microphones of Madness. Hey, everybody. It's Microphones of Madness. This is the second week of Sword and Soul Month. Today, we're looking at Griots, a Sword and Soul anthology edited by Milton J. Davis and Charles R. Saunders. Uh, this is back from 2011. For this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the first seven stories in the anthology. Steve, what'd you think of the whole book? Or what'd um, you think of this half, at least? Well, okay. It's definitely an anthology. There are stronger stories, but there was definitely a a good mix of storytelling styles that um, we haven't seen in Sword and Soul yet because we've really only read three authors. So, and the last anthology we read what was um, tag team by two of those authors. That would be uh, Milton Davis and Balogun Ojitade. Correct. And uh, I got very, very used to their styles and um, reading non Saunders Davis or Ojitade sword and soul material was a little off putting at first because I've come to expect that, but that's very narrow of me because those are only three authors and, um, there's 14 stories in this book. Mm-hmm. Just in the first seven stories alone, we see a, a wide variety of storytelling styles and narrative voices, yeah. uh, ranging from very serious to uh, almost comical mm-hmm. in, in their approach. Uh, we'll just hop right into it, and we'll start with uh, the first story by Milt Davis himself. In English, it's titled Captured Beauty and... I'm going I'm to attempt it. Marimbo Alienaswa. That's exactly what I would have said. Naturally. No, it's not. No, it's not. Now, this story, this is a story uh, featuring one of Davis's recurring characters, uh, Changa. Yes. Changa is a very uh, Conan, Imaro type of character. Or yes. since it's the Sword and Soul Month, we'll give Imaro top billing. So this is an Imaro... That was me. What the fuck was that? That was a coin that dropped off the desk. That is all. Wow. It's a big coin. I see that. (laughs) Um, I'm very partial to uh, Changa. Yes, Um, you are. You you rave about Changa. I really like the character. And I actually think that Changa is an evolution from a character like Imaro. Mm-hmm. Because he's not your typical fantasy sword and sorcery, sword and soul character. He's not a barbarian. No, um, he's actually a deposed prince who right. um, who had basically lost everything. Backstory: mm-hmm. His father was king. His father's um, court wizard uh, took over and uh, enslaved his, both his mother and. His mother and his sisters as uh, took them as his wives and vowed to kill Changa. Changa managed to escape and only to be uh, sold into slavery. And after a while fighting in the slave pits, he was freed by um, the, the character who is his boss in this story. Whose name is escaping me because I'm an idiot. Uh, Belay, sorry. His name is Belay. 
Belay frees him and, and takes Changa under his wing. And eventually, Changa uh, becomes his heir. Mm-hmm. And Changa's goal isn't conquest. His goal isn't um, your typical uh, sword and soul or sword and sorcery goals. He just wants to have, he just wants to free his, well, I guess it is. He wants to free his sisters from their uh, enslavement mm-hmm. and get revenge on the guy who took everything away from him. He doesn't do this um, with a sword. Well, he does eventually, because it all comes down to fighting. But he does it as a merchant. Mm-hmm. So he's really trying to build enough capital to be able to fund this endeavor. Right. Tonga, as a character, and in this story, we, we see like some of the evolution of his personality here. But as, as a character, he strikes me as, at this point, he's, he's almost kind of like a mobster type. Where, yeah, he uses the rules of the merchant class to get him where he wants to go, but you know, when it comes down to it, he's still he's still a badass with his throwing knives. Yeah, well, the the impetus of this story is the rescuing a, a woman who is enslaved. That because he was once a slave, I think that is what really is his motivation in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not the reward that they're going to get for doing it um, or the lack of of um, support that his boss will will get his boss has to pay for the woman for some reason it's his fault mm-hmm. because it was his son that initiated this whole situation he's not doing it for any of those reasons he's not even really doing it because it's the right thing to do he's doing it because he was a slave. And he knows that it's a shitty way to be. Right. And uh, he, he kind of breaks the rules because Belay is kind of like, yeah, well, I've done all I can. Well, right. Belay, Belay is constrained by his position mm-hmm. as, as a merchant captain. Changa is not. And, and even in the end, when everything pans out, uh, Belay basically tells him, I expected you to do that. Right. It's, it's almost kind of a, in some ways, there it's almost this wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. It's like, well, I've done all I can. I'm going to go stand over here with my eyes looking over toward the ocean. And if you're not there when I look, turn around again. Oh well. And it's yeah. almost it's almost like the partnership between Belay and and Changa is almost kind of this like special forces kind of thing. It's like since. Changa is technically Belay's slave. It's like, look, oh no, he's you know, freed. He's not a slave. Yeah, he's he's freed, but but in mm-hmm. the eye, eyes of other folks around, you know, in that culture, within the the merchant thing, you know, people consider him to be like a servant of Belay. Right. Well, and and he has to follow the same rules that Belay does, and Belay knows for a fact that Changa is going to follow his own rules. Yeah. Chaga does have that in common with your your other sword and soul characters. Is he is an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, he is not from the West, and, <laughs> or he's not from the East. Sorry, they're in, right. the, they're in the East. He's not from the East. He's from um, further out west. He's not a Muslim. Belay is a Muslim. Mm-hmm. I think that's like the whole the merchant class is is um, is Muslim. 
Right. And he has to behave in a certain way. He has to act a certain way. And Changa isn't really bound by those societal obligations. Correct. So, and, and, and Belay takes advantage of that in, in, in respect of, he knows that Changa is going to do the right thing. Right. Regardless to what the culture says, he's like, this is all I can do, you know, and keep my face. But, you, you can do your own thing. Right. I have a question for you. Have you read a lot of Changa? Uh, no, I haven't read a lot of Changa. Okay, but you can get this is the great thing about this story and about Milton Davis's writing in general is you can get a really, really good sense of who Changa is, who his characters are, the supporting cast, and everything just by reading this one story. To me, that is the the pinnacle of story writing right there. I mean, obviously, you want to a good plot mm-hmm. and action and everything in these stories. But to, to have that level of depth in a character, a story that is, it's not all that long of a story. No, it's not all that long of it's a like story. It's like a 20-page story. Davis is very, If uh, we've said this in the Kikanga anthology, he is a very efficient storyteller. Uh, he, yeah. can cram, he can pack a lot of information into very short space. I mean, and yeah, I mean, you really don't. You really don't feel like you're looking. You're. You know, you're looking at a slice of the the collected adventures of Changa. Right. But you know, this story is completely self-contained. If this is the only story about Changa that you read, there's enough information there that you basically know everything you need to know about these characters. Right. Even like the one-off villain of the piece, just a line. Um, It was more than any woman, woman of her station deserved. No matter how beautiful she is, she should have been grateful when he's talking about how that has bonded with her. Yeah, That is Belay's son who says Mm -hmm. that, by the way, who's a scumbag. He's not the ultimate villain, but he is a villain. And you just get this sense of, you know, Belay is kind of a, a cool guy for mm-hmm. who he is. Right. And his son is just a dick. And you mm-hmm. know his son is a dick. You know, even Belay says that he str- tries really hard to follow, like, a righteous path and do everything that's expected of him as a society and as a good Muslim. And his son's just, like, they they walk all over that, uh, even though it's his station, and really, they are living off the fruits of his good goodwill and good nature. They are. Well, he even tells Changa, "My dad's not going to be around forever," and Changa just looks back at him and says, "Neither are you." Yeah, one one of these days, my father will be dead, and so will you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> to be continued. The one thing I really want to know is what the fuck is up with wizards? Wizards are all bad in these stories. Aren't yeah, they? it's like no, everything. That's, that's not... No, we have two wizards. One, one wizard. We'll we'll get to it in a minute. There's another magic user who is a a, a, a heroine, and you know that's kind of those were interesting twists. But by and large, yeah, in sword and sorcery, sword and soul, 
the magic user is always the bad guy. Wizards are not to be trusted. Right. This story is 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 Davis's trademark style. It's it's paced just perfectly. Yeah. The narrative is tight. You're not left with any lingering questions. You do want to read more about the character, and I will get to the safari at, at some point. Um, yeah, there's uh, four safari books, and he's working on. There's three of the main story. Um, there's one prequel, mm-hmm. which is where this actually comes from, or is published as well. Mm-hmm. And then he's working on a fourth story to end it out, unfortunately. But I thought it was the perfect leadoff hitter for this anthology. It just, yeah. it just drags you in. Next, we have uh, Awakening by Valjean Jeffers, which this story I, I thought was written very much like a like a folk tale or possibly even a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a character named Nandi, who is a princess. Uh, she wants to be a warrior, but that's forbidden in her culture. Right. She takes to following the army in secret uh, after a vision in her childhood. And uh, Sule, her friend, who is also one of the king's guards, says, okay, fine, you want to be a warrior so bad, I will train you. And it's also this kind of like wooing type of situation where they're also... He wants to train her as well. And and she grows she grows to uh, care deeply for him as well. Yeah, I don't. It's, it's definitely a two way street with mm-hmm. with the uh, implied romance, right? Right. Or, implied because nothing happens. The pending romance, right? It actually was nipped in the bud because they got caught. Because they got caught. You find often a flaw in a lot of these tales is everybody but the main character is stupid and. Right. In this case, that's not the case. No. Her mother. Right. Her mother is like on point. Stupid. <laughs> she is uh, the, the the king's lead wife. Mm-hmm. And she, she ain't dumb. You know, she doesn't want to be a pampered princess whose you know, only goal in life is to cook and clean and be offered as a wife to some other you know noble. Right. She wants, she wants to be a warrior, and her desire is so strong that the war god, Ogun, actually takes an interest in her yeah. and decides to give her what she most desires. She is afforded the opportunity to partake in a raid on their, on their enemies, mm-hmm. and she handles herself very well, yep. and she's also given the aid of, um, well, supernatural aid. As a result of that raid, she ends up getting betrothed to the son of the enemy king. Right. Now, I thought it was funny that the, the enemy king's name was Fela. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did a little research, and this area that this takes place in is actually Nigeria, mm-hmm. where Fela is from. Fela, the, the musician, not. Uh, Right. So this whole time I'm picturing Fela Kuti <laughs> as the bad guy with his gap teeth. <laughs> with a saxophone. <laughs> as it turns out, and, and this is a spoiler because this, this is an anthology that was written six years ago. Or... We'll try not to be too spoilery here, but we're going right. to 
not be as careful with this as we would with something that would was newer. Mm-hmm. The enemy, the, the entire Fela and and the entire betrothal and and peace through marriage is a sham. They're using the wedding banquet to cover a, a raid, which Nandi single handedly. Well, I mean, she does have force. the help of Ogon and well, his, and his supernatural army of of uh, Panther warriors, Panther men. Yeah, yeah, but pretty much single handed. It's like one of those things that when I led allowed you to be on this raid, it was merely a test. You know, my my purpose for you is is much greater than that, and you'll see. And she comes back as not as a pampered princess, but as a full-fledged warrior. And basically just states her claim to her own independence right there. Yeah. uh, By throwing the head of the enemy commander onto the table. Here's your your dad's boy. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, this one, like I said, it read a lot like a folk tale or, or, or... a fairy tale of sorts. Uh, this yeah. is definitely something that you know would make a great movie. Yeah, it's a um, good. It's like a legend kind of. Yeah, it is kind of a legend. It's very epic, like that. It's comparable to something you would read, like out of Homer mm-hmm. or uh, Euripides, that kind of thing. Where very epic things happening. Yes, very epic things happening. The gods take an interest, and this is one of the few. In this in this vein, where the gods do take an interest on the side of the heroes, right? Which which does lean lend it to that that Homeric type of feel. Speaking of legends, that brings us to Last Son by uh, Maurice Broadus. This story is actually framed as a story within a story. The king is sitting there. He asks the storyteller to tell a story of one of the ancient ancestors. Right, and it's it's interesting because the storyteller mm-hmm. is uh, they say that he served as the village's memory. Mm-hmm. So he's not just the storyteller; he is the historian. He, right, he is the textbook mm-hmm. of of these of the people and their connection to the past. Right, and we've we've mentioned it in, in when looking at other sword and soul stories that there's a very uh, oral tradition type of feel to a lot of the narrative. And in this, it's not only is it a plot device, but it, this also takes on that style. And that's, and that's what the way a storyteller works is they, they focus as a a historian and also as kind of the uh, collector of pop culture in a way. Or that area, right? So you know any type of uh, you know fables or or any other type of moral lesson is also the griot's realm of expertise, right? And now, now this story that the storyteller tells that if you can follow that is the story of how their legendary hero Digasis mm-hmm. Digasise basically how he came came to be how he founded the village kind of once again we're we're treated to an evil magician yeah uh, 
But this story, this story also kind of has just kind of like an evil magician wazir, mm-hmm. almost kind of like uh, Jafar in Aladdin. Yeah, I was thinking Jafar as well. I mean, that that's where my mind goes to is Jafar. I, I thought this story really had a, a western, like a like Clint Eastwood movie Cowboy or something western. like that. Yeah, a man with no name wanders into village, stops some bandits. You know, and he kind of comes in, and he's still kind of an outsider, right? And observing it, it in in some respects, it's almost kind of all also like Yojimbo, uh, except he's not playing two factions against each other. He's yeah. It, it, to me, it had definitely had a lot of that um, that Japanese samurai flavor to it. But mm-hmm. I've been reading a lot of that, so, right? For a side project, and that is kind of where my mind is. It, Dinga Dinga does feel very much kind of like this Ronin kind of character. All he really cares about is proving himself in battle, honing his skills in battle. Mm-hmm. And and that's it. To, to the point where women try to seduce him and he's just <laughs> like, he's almost like a... He's, he's got pretty women throwing themselves at him and he's like, I'm just trying to work on my sword forms. Right. <laughs> um, what's also interesting about this this story is that, that Dinga is 15 at the time. And so he's, he's a very young man, but he's been out here on his own honing his skills. And he's a very, very formidable warrior. You kind of get the feeling he's like one of those, I'm out to seek my fortune. You know, I've done all I can as a boy. Now I have to prove myself as a man. And the way to do that is to wander the earth and right. kick ass. Right. He has, and and it gives him that Ronin wandering gunslinger, even mm-hmm. going into like the Chinese tradition that that warrior monk type of thing, where he, he's just, he's by himself and he comes in and tries to help people. Although his particular talent is violence, right. he's also a very astute observer. There's many things. The fact that he can't be tempted, whether it's women or power or anything like that, right. says a lot for the character as well. Because he, he is tempted by the uh, the evil wizard. Right. And uh, he's, the, he's tempted I, by I, the, uh, the daughter of the, of the village leader. Mm-hmm. Both of them are like, I can give you power. I can give you everything you desire. And he's like, well, all I really desire is to prove myself in battle. Yeah. This is my test to return to my home and become a leader. But he's not at the point where he wants to become a leader yet. Right. But eventually he does. Um, I also found it interesting that that we get the end piece to this story. And guys are like, you know, that was a very dangerous story to tell. Because one of the people he's telling the story to is a a wizard. (laughs) It wouldn't be the same if he was just telling the story. Right. To tell the story to make a point. Mm-hmm. makes it you know pregnant with meaning right and I, I you know I love his response at the end he's like oh that was a very dangerous story to tell it's like hey it's just a story man yeah <laughs> see you later <laughs> there's a lot going on here in terms of how the culture is being portrayed you, you, you get this implied incest of the uh, of the Ghana that his uh his sister is also his his wife, but and it's not it's not presented in a judgmental way, right? Right. It's presented in a very matter of fact way, right? And it's almost like you know this is the story of the birth of civilization for this area rather than 
yeah, there were towns, there were villages, but there were these corrupting influences in society, and this and Dinga actually, you know, tamed that to an extent. Well, to to an extent, you would think that um, one of the reasons why you have um, royal incest is to keep the the divine bloodline pure. Mm-hmm. And Dinga, who comes in and takes over, basically, right, is not of that bloodline. He's he's from. Out west, or out east, sorry. Right. From out east. He, in a way, changes that, that idiom. You're no longer in charge through the divine right of kings. You're now in charge because you, you have the power to do so. Right or wrong, it's a, it's a different method of governing. Mm-hmm. Or, or a different method of legitimizing government. An interesting thing about the first three stories here is all three of them feature outsider protagonists whether it's it's changa nandi or dinga changa and dinga are from outside the society in which their stories take place physically outside physically outside so in a way they're kind of an observer and they see something that is wrong with the society and they do something to repair it in that one instance nandi on the other hand actually actively is in the process of rebelling against her own society. Mm -hmm. So you get these outsider perspectives and their observations of the society that they live in and what's wrong with it and them taking actions to correct it. Well, in a way, Nandi um, is the ultimate outsider because she is way inside. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's a princess. She's the daughter of the king, king and the, the number one wife. So she's like the ultimate in, insider. You don't get much more inside than that. Right. But because um, of her station and her desires are in conflict, she becomes the ultimate outsider. Right. Because she is completely constrained by her her culture. And she mm-hmm. has the difficulty of having to break out of that. And that's the whole story is her pushing against the limits and getting pulled back. Right. Until finally, she breaks free, or she she awakens. Yes. Next on the list is In the Wake of Mist by Kirk A. Johnson. This is a very traditional kind of sword and sorcery slash fantasy tale. Yeah, this this is a very, very D&D-esque, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, complete with dungeon, complete with uh, trickster wizard character who is who is acts as an antagonist, but really isn't. Right. He's going to hone your abilities through conflict. Right. And, and Johnson here, I think I mentioned this before we started recording is that this story has a very Clark Ashton Smith kind of feel mm-hmm. uh, in that he uses very poetic language and a lot of atmosphere to describe what's going on. And in fact, a lot of the the scenes of the the combat are very brutal, very graphic, yet written in such a way that is almost poetry. Yeah, it's it's very psychedelic in, in parts, mm-hmm. and it's it's it differs in tone from what's gone on prior to it. And I I won't be I'm not ashamed to admit that I had to read some parts over uh, because of the the language which um, is not a complaint at all sometimes you just gotta process the language and you're expecting one thing and you're given a different thing so 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely in comparison to the first three stories, the language is completely different. Uh-huh. Yeah, it does. It feel does feel like you're reading a much older story from the heyday of of the pulps. Yeah, and it still it's. I really enjoyed the story, and it it is in essence an origin story, uh, where this character goes through and faces these trials with the help slash hindrance of the wizard, and mm-hmm. then returns to realize that the gifts of the divine have this kind of cost. Very good addition to this anthology. Well, you had mentioned that it's this piece is part of a larger yes, body of work. Yes, part of a larger body of work, or the beginnings of a larger body of work. But uh, yeah, this is definitely a, a world that I'd like to revisit at some point just to see the further adventures of this character. Next up, we have Skin Magic by P. DeJelly Clark. Which is funny because the pseudonym translates to um, performer, a storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Jelly A. Griot. This one of my notes here is just whoa with an exclamation point. I know. <laughs> this, this story takes everything that I like about these kinds of stories and just throws it at you <laughs> at breakneck speed. Right. You've absolutely. Got, you've got action, adventure, violence. You've got mythosy kind of monsters. Mm-hmm. You've got evil sorcerers and magic. And, and sneering thugs. Yeah. Tough guys and stuff like that. And just, yeah, it's got, it's got, there's so much going on here that you literally, I had to take a break after I read it just because there was, there, it was so much. And it was just like, whew. Yeah, it's a lot to go through. Yeah. And, and really, you're kind of out of breath by the time you get to the end of the climax. Oh, my. And it's the longest story so far in the collection. Mm-hmm. And it might be the longest story in the collection. And it's, it's got, Peaks and valleys of, you know, tension and release. It's almost like a piece of music. Oh, yeah. Hell, I almost found myself getting choked up a little bit at the end. Right. Simply, you know, <laughs> right. I'm sorry, man. I got to go. It's the law of the West. <laughs> right. That's off on, sets off on his own. The best way to describe it in, an, in like an elevator pitch sort of sense is, what if Aladdin and the lamp were actually the same thing? Yeah. You know, and it, it, it has a very, uh, very callback to kind of tower of the elephant kind of thing. It's definitely got that, um, Arabian nights kind of feel Ooh. to it. Definitely has an Arabian nights kind of feel to it. You have a beggar mm-hmm. who, um, has this power that he can't control. Right. And I mean, not to be too spoilery, but he has a tattoo that is a extra dimensional gate <laughs> that monsters come out of. Right. And he can't control when it happens. No. Thanks for random monsters. For him, it, it happens to him. It happens to him once um, in the very beginning, and it creates this kind of nightmare situation that puts him on the run. I think it's when he's super stressed out. Yeah. yeah. And, um, the Incredible Hulk of, of sorts. But you know it happens to him when he's in danger. I mean, the first the first uh, section of the story is 
the character is being pursued by people who want him for the skin magic that he has. And he's attacked by Cthulhu. Right, or something similar. Yeah, it's got it's tentacles. Lots of tentacles. Uh, Shumagorath comes out. Shumagorath! <laughs> yeah, and, and he goes through and he hooks up with a merchant. A merchant just kind of very much a, a fellow like Belay in in uh, Milton Davis's story, you know, he he just walks through the crowd and he sees the guy and he goes, "Hey, are you hungry? Come on, I'll give you something to eat. All you got to do in return is listen to me tell my stories." Right. And it's actually ends up turning into a job offer for the guy. Right, and you kind of knew that was going to happen. Yeah. And he, he works for this family, and he ends up, in essence, becoming part of the family. And, and in a sense, there is that kind of Western vibe going on as the mysterious stranger with a dark past. Mm-hmm. One of the, I guess that's one of those universal kind of themes. Yeah. And we find out what is going on, you know, why, why he has this skin magic. Well, you get that um, in little little information packets. You don't mm-hmm. get the whole story at once. Because it, it starts off where you have like this nightmarish reality and this guy could at any point just level a town because he's got he's got, you know, Yoke Sothoth coming out of his belly. Well well that's the thing is that this particular type of magic apparently creates different doors and you never know what is going to come out right now when he is with the merchant, it turns out the merchant's daughter um, also performs skin magic, but she can control it. Mm-hmm. So she starts teaching him and you learn what it is that he has. Right. But it's not the complete picture because you, you don't know why she can a control it. And her skin magic isn't like this malevolent monstrosity. No, hers it's is. Beneficial things. Yeah. And she, she, because of her own moral upbringing, you know, only uses her skin magic for certain things. Right. And then you get the entire story dumped on you when the villains of the piece actually arrive. And they don't arrive until very late in the story. No, you, 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 you know at that point something's got to happen because of what it is. Right, and you're far enough into the story that it's like, okay, this is either going to turn out really bad or it's going to turn out really good. Right, and if it turns out really good, it's going to be lame. So you want something bad to happen. No, you don't necessarily want it bad to happen, but you you could go the Lovecraftian route with it and it have a very sour and... I don't um, think that that route is in the cards. What what I mean by bad is getting attacked by the bandits who are looking for you. Right. I don't mean like your mark opens the up but yeah. I, that's not what I meant by bad. I, no. I mean bad for these people in the story. Uh if it was a, if it was certain other books that we've read in the past, yeah, it would have ended up with, you know, the world ends. Yeah, I mean you you gotta you know if it's in a certain anthology Mm-hmm. You kind of got a ballpark of what you're in for, right? And there is a certain there is a certain high level of positivity in Sword and Soul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Most definitely, a lot, a lot more than than certain other 
anthology sweetbread. Right. Which will go nameless. Correct. You have the the big climax where you know he does kind of hulk out and the portal opens and and a freak comes out. Yeah. And kills the bad guys. And then you have one But the one the one bad guy. Right. The the leader of the bandits was just like in awe. (laughs) Right. He's like, whoa. I'm about to die, but wow. (laughs) Right. I mean, the villain of the piece, I mean, he has his, like, you know, knee breaker guys who are just, like, straight up bad. Yeah. But, you know, he's kind of more of an honorable kind of villain because... He's like, I got hired to do a job, and I'm doing my job. Right. I got hired to do a job. I'm doing my job. You know, I really enjoyed, for what it's worth, guys, I really enjoyed hanging out with you and and hearing (laughs) your stories. But you have to die. This goat was this goat was pretty good, and uh, so he's he's almost like that Christopher Walken kind of right. level. Of bad guy. <laughs> I have to kill you because you know about Fight Club, right? <laughs> and uh, you're not supposed to know about Fight Club, so I gotta kill y'all <laughs> or yeah. sorcerer sorcerer club. Right, it's it's nothing personal, guys. And but the Illuminati doesn't yeah. like people knowing that the Illuminati is here. <laughs> And the guy's like, well, you know, you don't really have to kill us. I won't say anything. He's like, you know, I trust, I believe you when you say that to me. But you are a guy who loves to tell us. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the trio isn't going to tell the most wonderful, wondrous thing that's ever happened to him. <laughs> right, exactly. But when he sees, you know, what comes out of our, our hero's chest... And he just looks at me and he goes, that is just really fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> Squish. That, that, that made the story good. And then, then he has to struggle again because in order to save everyone else from this monster and not have a repeat of people he cares about being destroyed by his what he believes to be his curse, he has to learn to control the entities that come out. Right, because he's not the he's not only he's kind of a hybrid because he's got the skin magic, mm-hmm. which is what allows him to even have survived what happened. Right, but he got a skin magic fused with a uh, botched spell that he interrupted mm-hmm. that was going to bring down these things onto the earth. Right. And probably a specific thing, but because he has the skin magic, he's able to subconsciously like reconfigure the patterns to create different gates. Yeah, which is which is really a very cool power. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. But he has to okay. wander off because you have to have a little bit of melancholy, right? Of course, but it's melancholy. It's not. Right, it's not like there's not tentacles it. dripping down from the sky and everybody's being raped. Right for food. Exactly. This is also the the first story that mentions uh, Europeans, mm-hmm. and it's told by um, Master Dawan, the, the trader, where he talks of lands beyond the known world where white sand that was cold to the touch covered everything, and men with skin like a pig's belly and adorned with golden hair draped themselves in thick furs, riding into battle covered in heavy metal and armed with broad steel blades. 
was simply too much to believe. Right. And it's like we, we know exactly who he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere out there, someone stole a sweet roll. <laughs> right. Let me guess. Someone stole your sweet roll. Yeah, this was a this was a fantastic story. I, now, yeah. the next story on the list, The Demon in the Wall by Stafford L. Battle, is actually, this is the one I was speaking of earlier that has almost a comical tone to it. It does. <laughs> but it is also very near and dear to us because one of the main villains is very similar to the types of characters that are played uh, in our role-playing games by Wesley James Young. Yeah, it's Iago Clearwater is, is the villain mm-hmm. of the piece. Yes. So what we have is we have a, a, a pair of... The swallow is from the East. Yes, he's from the East. The generic <laughs> East. Right. You know, we don't want to say exactly where she's from. Right. But we have a pair of our, our heroes, a, a magic user, Grandma, and a fighter. Now, this is your magic user, your actual wizard, who isn't right. evil. Right. The first the first not-quite-evil wizard was in, in the wake of the mist, in the wake of mist. But and it was this, more of a trickster kind of, still right. adversarial. Mm-hmm. Not evil, but adversarial. But grandma, grandma is straight up cool, right? Grandma is is, just, and she is just a straight badass. Yeah, she is. And yeah, there there are a lot of things in this story that are played for laughs. As disgusting as the villain is, and he is completely disgusting. Oh, he's a total pig. You know, I mean, he just casually mentions that you know what he wants as payment is to be able to rape Swallow. You know, yeah, and not even, not even like have sex with her. He wants a straight up raper. Right. That's that's his idea of fun, and that's what that's that's all this guy is about. Is you know, is like, look, you know, I can get money anytime I want. I got money. I can get more. Right. Immortality you know? sounds like it'd be boring. Right. Immortality is going to be boring. You know what I want? I want some good old fashioned depraved behavior. Yeah. And that's all this guy is about is, is is getting his jollies. The more depraved, the better. Right. He is, if you think of your, your stereotype of a Roman, a late period Roman emperor. Yeah, like your Caligula. <laughs> yeah, that's who this guy is. He's like, he's fat. You could see him totally sitting on the day bed with the grapes, covering himself in honey. Having his slaves lick it off, right? That's the kind of guy this is. You know, while they're being branded across their bare ass, right. you know? yeah, He's straight straight out of William S. Burroughs, right? I mean, this guy, this guy, yeah, he's he's funny, but he's also just absolutely repulsive at the same time. Yeah, it's completely and it's deployed. because, and I, and I think it's because he's so over the top, right? As as a villain. That what makes it amusing is, is such a stereotype. I mean, he would be wearing a trilby if he was. This was a modern set. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> yeah, with a with one of those like you know, not all Roman emperors, <laughs> right? Not not all evil villains, but basically, what we have is fat guy fat, depraved son of a bitch and Swallow, 
are in service to this mysterious entity called the demon in the wall. Right. And apparently the demon in the wall actually lives in every wall that's ever built. Every permanent wall. Right. Also, um, the demon in the wall, for some reason, needs souls. Mm-hmm. And they have the perfect little tool to get them. The more powerful and noble and honorable these people are, the better souls there are to feed their master. Uh, and everybody's promised something, whether it's, you know, this pleasures of the flesh or whatnot that um, the, the one Bill, I can't remember his name. Oh, um, hold on. His name is Fabu. Fabu. Fabu the Fabulous? Was it the Fabulous? Fabu the Fabulous? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what he calls himself. And and that, that kind of makes him funny, too, because, you know, you see him as this kind of, like, almost foppish sort of guy. <laughs> and actually, that's kind of how he's described. He dresses in very opulent clothing, gaudy clothing. Um, he's as, also as, one of those guys, if I can't have it, no one can have it kind of things. Right. When he captures the, uh, the king's uh, robe, his robe of office, mm-hmm. and he's chastised for it you can't wear that they can track you through that he wipes his ass with it right literally (laughs) yeah and then has swallow piss on it to make it unwearable well he tells her to we don't know that she actually does because she's quite secretive swallow is not human no she's a lizard person she yep she is a reptilian who lives underground She's wearing a people suit, which apparently is a rather attractive Asian woman. Yes. Well, Fabu knows this and still wants to rape her. Right. Exactly. And on the other side of the coin, so we have these two villains. Who are really, you know, just as far as villains go, they're great. Right. They, they, are, they are great villains. They have such a, they have a weird rapport. They, they do. They have like this, this semi-antagonistic banter mm-hmm. going on where you could tell that they really don't like each other right but they have to work together and there's the thing that's keeping them together is more powerful than either of them are right and there's nothing they can do about it right and it's just kind of funny because you know Fabu the fabulous is is saying all of these things these depraved things and Swallow is just like, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> yeah, Swallow plays the straight straight woman. Yeah, you're a sick fuck. Then on the other side, like you were saying, you have um, grandma or grandmother. Right, grandmother. We can call her grandma, though. I don't think she'd mind. Uh, no. And and grandson. Zenday. Yeah. Zenday uh, does sweet flips. Right, he's like he's uh, he's a very acrobatic fighter. He's very skilled. He dual wields, uh, you know. He's just a real hothead kind of guy, and he kind of has an antagonistic relationship with his grandmother, and and those two are very funny together, but they also are like the ultimate team. Yeah. Now that is that's not an antagonistic relationship born out of fear. Mm. That is one born out of love. That right. is more. Of banter like real banter mm-hmm. that's that's you know you listen to your grandma now right you know 
And and grandma grandma got a little bit of a dirty mind too. Yes, she does. The story gets it, it, it's really interesting because grandma is not that much of a grandma. You know you know what I mean? Right. Uh, battle goes through. You know, talks about grandma, and we we introduce. He's like, I need a bath. You know, don't forget to get the you know, sponge to wash my back. He's like, oh, you know, surely there's some servant women around here that can do that for you. And he's like, what? You've never seen a woman naked before? Right. He's like, ah, oh, it's my grandma. <laughs> grandma, for some reason, has this habit of losing her clothes every time she fights. <laughs> you know, she gets she gets That's tricked by Fabu. You know, she goes undercover and they're kind of just like playing along. With with the bad guys ruse, and she's supposed. I guess she's doing the dance of the seven veils, yeah. and grandson <laughs> runs in, and she's like almost completely naked. And her only explanation was, you know, I got sorry. too much into the dance. I got into <laughs> I got too much into the dance, and then she looks at it, and goes, I "Think I'm sexy, don't you?" <laughs> poor like, grandma, <laughs> yeah, poor zombie. <laughs> He's like. I just waded through an army of, of reptilians. <laughs> and, I, and my triumph rescue of you is you're half naked with this fat fuck. Again, <laughs> she strips down to take a bath, right? The first battle they get into with reptilians, you know, at the site of her son's cloak, her, her clothes fall off again. It says she adjusts what little clothes she had yeah. to accommodate for modesty. And, and that's it. Grandma Grandma cannot keep her clothes on. Right. I guess it should be said that the whole point of this story is their whole encampment got disappeared into the device that is right, used for right. storing souls to feed to the god in the wall. Right. Which is which really even forget about the, the, the narrative once you're you know you listen to these characters talking to each other. Yeah, and the, the dialogue here between all of the major characters is so snappy. It's um, it's a lot like uh, Dragon Age Three. Yeah, it remember is. if you if you got the right party together in Dragon Age Three, mm-hmm. that was the most entertaining thing was listening to the back and forth. And Grandma gets some back and forth with Babu, but um, Grandson does not really get much witty banter going on with uh, Swallow. No, well, I don't think that. Uh, Swallow has Zende. no sense of humor. Yeah, and Zende is a little. I think he's more interested in kicking some ass. Right, he's Zende. a little tightly wound. Yeah, you know, because he starts like you know going off screaming. You know when uh, I yeah, he's just ready to to kick everybody's ass. Right, all the time. He's just he's wound up. Well, he's also they they describe him. He's short. Right, he's got like a Napoleon type of comedy. Yeah, he's very short, and he's the youngest, right? Mm-hmm. So, his, I mean, he has a lot to prove. Right. So and you can understand all... why he would be a little wound up. Right. Um, yeah, and that's one of the... But, yeah, the dialogue, and it, almost constant action going on. I mean, there's very little downtime in this story. Because when there's no action... It's this snappy dialogue, and oftentimes there's snappy dialogue during the action. You know, like Grandma always has to pause to make a one-liner. Yeah. Truthfully, I want to read more about Grandma. Grandma is just a <laughs> badass. Yeah, Grandma's awesome. Yeah. 
So we get to the final story, The Belly of the Crocodile by Minister, yeah. Minister Faust, which is, has to be one of the coolest author names ever. Didn't you meet that guy the other day? No, his name was, his name was Alan. Alan Faust? Yeah, and I cut him a deal. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Now, we were talking about, at the very beginning when we started to record, about the, uh, the differences in writing style. Mm-hmm. And this story is far different in tone to all of the other tales. Yeah, Our narrator funny. here is is crude and extremely bitter. Well, the narrator, I mean, it's not a spoiler because right. he says it right in the first line. He's the villain of the piece. Right. This is um, not, well, not only is it a story from the villain's point of view, but it's a famous story from the villain's point of view. And that's right. something you don't really get a lot. Right. This is uh, essentially a retelling of Osiris and Set. I had to go back and restart the story just because. It was a distracting. Yeah, because <laughs> because the the voice used in the narration was so much different. If you want to talk about a villain that needs to be wearing a trilby, this oh, yeah. is a trilby villain. Oh my god! Yeah, this <laughs> guy is is he's like the MRA. Oh my god! He is definitely. Uh, definitely a hater of women yeah he thinks that the world owes him just for his very existence yes just because he's there he goes off he goes off in his huff you know gets eaten by a crocodile well he purposefully gets eaten by right. a crocodile because he knows about transform and that's what he wants he wants to gain the power he wants to the entire reason he leaves is so he can come back more powerful and right he's, look, he's looking for a token over. He's looking for a magic token. Uh, you Ujat. Right. His brother has one. He doesn't well, he's have convinced one. convinced his brother has one. But I don't think his brother has one. I think his brother just is Osiris. Right. <laughs> and it, it's pretty... The story itself is pretty straightforward. And, and I think most of this one is just the attitude of the narrator. Yeah. Well, but it's interesting because, you know, how many times have you heard the story of... Uh, of Osiris and Set, it's a pretty familiar story. Right. How many times have you heard it from Set's point of view? Absolutely, this is the first time. And how many people have the skill to write it so that you really don't feel sorry for the guy? You actually realize he is a right. piece of shit. You know, it's not it's not Paradise Lost where you end up feeling sympathy for the devil. It's like, no, right. do not feel sympathy for this guy at no, all. This guy's a piece of shit. And he like has Literally. completely convinced himself that he's not a piece of shit. In the climax of the story, this guy is a literal piece of shit. Yeah, crocodile shit. You don't get much lower than that. Right, exactly. So, you know, and that twisted cosmic joke at the end there is what really was the payoff for this story. Right. We're not really doing it justice describing it. No, we're not. As, as we are. So, yeah, this is this is a story that you really have to read to appreciate. But you should read all these stories. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, because this has been a fantastic fucking book so far. Oh, yeah. the, the thing I like that strikes me the most of this story really mm-hmm. is the fact that he thinks his brother is the golden boy because he has an Ujat, and he must have swallowed an Ujat. Right. Because he can't accept the fact that his brother just is good and has and cares about people and can do stuff. He's he, always he, singing those damn songs. Yeah. He can't accept it is Osiris's innate powers. He mm-hmm. it must be a trick because everything that he does 
is a trick. Mm-hmm. And he can't see beyond um, himself. So there we go. We go from Changa to a literal piece of shit. <laughs> if you get a chance to check this book out, best thing to do, of course, always is to purchase a copy from MV Media. From MV Media. This is a book that you're going to find yourself wanting to go back to over and over again. All of these stories are fantastic. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with part two of our review of Griot's A Sword and Soul Anthology. See you next time.